Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Well, we are today in the middle of a series called Evolving Christianity. In this series, we are exploring what we mean when we say that Pearl, Pearl Church, is a local expression of evolving Christianity. Evolving unfolding, expanding, adapting, becoming. Rather than remaining static, our engagement with God and our sacred story impel us to keep moving forward as our understanding of divine love deepens and expands. An evolving Christianity reads our scripture as a story with a trajectory, Throughout the biblical text, we see this unfolding realization of what God is like, a movement toward love, a movement toward mercy, a movement toward peace. A a term that I found really helpful to understand this kind of movement is progressive apprehension, progressive apprehension. At Uh, Over time, humanity's apprehension, our ability to see, our ability to understand divine love has continued moving forward. God has always been, always been more generous, always been more loving and more inclusive and more present to human life than our containers, our theological containers can allow us to see. And so over time, in any era, our our ideas of God are too small to express the wide horizon of God's love. But over time, those containers are pressed to expand. They are expanded and expanding, so we see more of what God is up to. The point of progressive apprehension is that it's not God that's changing. Rather, the divine is always love. Our capacity Our human capacity to recognize and respond to what God is doing is what is changing through the ages. And this means that an evolving Christianity is not changing to become something else. Rather, Christianity is becoming more fully itself, more faithful to the way of Jesus, as our ability to understand Jesus' teaching of divine love continues to grow today. Last week, I suggested that while the experience of our faith expanding is good, it can also feel disconcerting. Uh, It can feel like deconstructing. We talked about these images of like burning it all down or the bridge being cut away or a Jenga tower that you're pulling blocks out of and eventually just topples. But we said that it might be more helpful to see deconstruction through some different metaphors like clearing space clearing space, or returning to the heart, or coming home. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be engaging this metaphor of clearing space. 
How does our understanding of divine love evolve? Well, in in no small part, it expands as we clear space. That is, as we step back from interpretations and edifices of theology that we've inherited, and we make room to listen, to listen to the perspectives of those whose voices have been marginalized and let them expand our horizons. And part of what we're hoping to demonstrate is that the ways Christianity is evolving today are not discontinuous or totally new developments out of nowhere. Rather, we're today unfolding ideas that were present as seeds, and they're now bearing fruit in this Christian worldview. Today, we're going to start by looking at one vital way Christianity is evolving today, the full participation of women and the full participation of the LGBTQIA community at every level of our Christian communities. Now, of course, uh, to begin with, I recognize that women's experiences and the queer experience are not the same, nor are they monolithic. Uh, But traditionally, our Christian faith has had this very patriarchal lens, right? And that has emphasized straight, cisgender, male voices and excluded female and sexual minority voices from the table. Now, straight men, I'm not picking on you. It's just the way it is. And of course, there is a patriarchal bias to the text of the Bible. It's there, right? This shouldn't be that surprising given the cultures that the the authors of the text lived in. In one sense, to say that the Bible is patriarchal is not very interesting. I mean, how else would people of the ages have explained and experienced life and the divine? What other lenses did they have available to them? But what is interesting, and this is kind of what we're on the hunt for, uh, what is interesting is when other perspectives break the surface of the text. And what you get is these, these moments of movement, these hints about what the overall scriptural story is doing, indicating that the divine is pulling humanity forward beyond ancient patriarchal assumptions. So let's start with women, the full participation of women in the Christian community. Now, amid plenty of very patriarchal texts that are not kind toward women, what stands out in the Gospels and in Acts is this unexpectedly egalitarian treatment of women by Jesus and the earliest Christian communities. Over and over again, we see women playing roles in Jesus' ministry and the early church that are for the culture, very surprising and unexpected. Is it perfect? No. Is it far enough? No. But it's a big leap forward, and it's a hint of where God is taking us today. So, for example, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is a great gospel to look at if you want to look at the role of women in the, in the gospel ministry. They, they, they come up a lot. So Luke names three women as very highly involved and even financing Jesus' ministry. Uh, Luke writes, Jesus was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits. Mary, called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who ministered to them out of their own resources. Now, what this text is telling us is that not only are there women who are accounted as important as the twelve, so you've got the twelve disciples and then these three women 
side by side. But also, these women are funding Jesus's ministry. Uh, a little fun aside here, uh, Chusa is a steward of Herod. Herod doesn't like Jesus, right? But Chusa's wife is paying for Jesus's ministry. So who's paying for Jesus's ministry? Herod is. That's fun. Okay. The Gospels show women of all kinds treated with dignity and respect, having direct access to Jesus, from the woman at the well in Samaria, to Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha, to the woman who breaks open a bottle of perfume to anoint Jesus, and not to mention the extended meditation we get on Jesus' mother Mary, his aunt Elizabeth, and the prophetess Anna, and the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel. And crucially, and, and perhaps most oddly, all of the Gospels agree that the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection are women. In a world where women's voices were not given weight as legal testimony, it's a very odd choice for all of the Gospel writers to insist that the ones who saw Jesus' resurrection first were women. And so we can say that the first ones who preached the gospel are women. In the early church, too, we see women participating fully as prominent leaders and founders of communities. So Romans 16, let's just take this one example. The, the Romans 16, it's the end of the letter. You know, he, Paul writes his letters and at the end. He just says, like, say hi to this person for me and say hi to your mom for me. And, you know, all these things. And we just kind of pass through it. These are actually really interesting sections based on what he says. So in Romans 16, for example, Paul lists out Phoebe, who is a deacon. Uh, and a benefactor of Paul, so another woman who is bankrolling the whole thing. Uh, Priscilla, who is named often as a gifted teacher alongside her husband Aquila. And then we have Junia. Junia, Paul says, is an apostle. That's one of the most important if not the most important leadership roles in the early church, Junia the Apostle. The presence of Junia in this text is so controversial that over the centuries, many theologians have just assumed, well, that it must be a typo. Uh, it must be Junius, because it's got to be a man. Uh, but no, the text says Junia. The earliest manuscripts we have say Junia, which is a female name. Uh, some of our modern English translations today are so uh, allergic to her being a woman that they contort the grammar to make, it, make her not an apostle, but someone known to the apostles, which is just very backward. And the early church taught for the first millennium of church history that Junia was a woman. For example, John Chrysostom in the fourth century wrote, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. So, in the gospel, we have women as benefactors. We have women as supporters. We have women as central figures in Jesus' ministry. We have women treated with dignity and respect and shown engaging positively with Jesus and in Jesus' life. Women as the crucial witnesses to the resurrection. Women as leaders and teachers and even apostles in the early church. So today, when we speak of an evolving Christianity that affirms the full participation of women, what we are doing is unfolding what is already in our text, but has never been allowed to go far enough. Now, 
I want to turn to queer voices, like voices of the LGBT uh, community. And I want to admit that when we turn to queer voices, our sample size of text in the Bible gets a lot smaller. The ideas of sexual orientation and gender identity were just not available. These are really modern ideas that weren't available to the authors of the Bible. But if we look for hints, if we look for movement that aligns with this overarching movement of Scripture, well, then we can find it. There is a category of sexual minority that gets a really surprising treatment in the Scriptures. In the early days of the church, after the martyring of Stephen in Jerusalem, the disciples are scattered for their safety, and among them, Philip, one of the deacons, flees to Gaza. And in our passage this morning in Acts 8, we read, now there's an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, in charge of her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, and returning home, seated in their chariot, they were reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up and heard them reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? And they replied, how can I unless someone guides me? Now this is easy to pass over today because we don't really understand this category of eunuch today. In this society, the eunuch serves as a kind of sexual other. It's a kind of space for those who don't exist on the gender binary. Court officials, uh, you know, this is a day where there's a lot of like palace intrigue, right? And so you want someone who's not going to uh, sleep with the queen, so you get a eunuch. Court officials were frequently either castrated males or they were intersex persons who couldn't produce children. It's not a big leap to suppose that there were also what we would today call gay or trans individuals in this category as well. It just becomes this kind of lump sexual other. Levitical law called anyone whose gendering was non-binary defiled. Such a person would never be seen as fully belonging, and they would be excluded from worship in the temple. And that wasn't just true of Judaism. It was true of a lot of religious structures in the ancient Near East. Now, in Acts 8, it turns out the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And I don't think it's a coincidence Uh, that the eunuch is reading this passage because just a few chapters later, which would have been just a few turns of the scroll, we read the passage that we heard from Isaiah this morning. Thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Here's a text with a difference. This divinity does not cut off, but gives belonging to the sexual minority, to the sexual other. Rather than being disenfranchised, cut out of the community, this God wants the eunuch right in his house. No wonder the eunuch is poring over this text and wanting to know who is the one who brings this about. I mean, I remember when I first encountered a reading of Scripture that invited me to see myself as a queer person, as wholly belonging, how obsessively I read and reread and wanted someone to tell me that I wasn't crazy, that it was right for thinking that God really did accept me. It doesn't take much for me to imagine how voraciously the eunuch would have pondered this text. 
And so the story continues, and Philip explains the gospel to the eunuch, and they're going along, and the eunuch says, look, here's some water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Now, pause. Baptism is a uh, rite of initiation. It's a meaning of being enfolded into and belonging in the community. So for a eunuch to say, what is there to keep me from belonging in this community? Well, according to these Old Testament teachings, everything. You can't belong in the community. But this God, this God we're talking about from Isaiah, this God who is revealed in Christ. The eunuch says, what's there to prevent me from being baptized? They stop the chariot, Philip and the eunuch go down, and Philip baptizes the eunuch. So we have in this text the presence of one of the very few categories of sexual minority that would have been recognized by the authors of our text. And the text tells us there is nothing, nothing that prevents this person from fully belonging in the community of Jesus. See, this is the kind of hint that makes me think that the overarching scriptural movement really is toward inclusion. When you put this story alongside all the many divisions that are overcome and set aside in the name of Christ, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, straight and queer, this text gives me a hint that the ways Christianity is evolving today to include the full participation of LGBTQIA plus people is just an extension of what God has always been up to in the world. Now, okay. Some of you may be thinking, wow, that's nice, that sounds great, these ideas are in the text, okay, but what about Paul? <laughs> what about all those verses in the text? And how is it that today still the majority of Christian communities don't allow the full participation of women and the LGBTQ community? If there is this movement in the ministry of Jesus, then why didn't things move forward? These are good questions. First of all, just as we said last week, whenever there is a movement, okay, so you've got a movement, a radical, new, vibrant way of seeing the world, an experience of the divine that changes everything, well, very quickly, the attempts to build up structure and containers to hold that movement, to preserve it, to pass it along to the next generation, those build up and they quickly become rigid and they become formalized and they absorb the assumptions of the culture that they're in and ironically they end up crushing the very movement they they aimed at first to set free we talked about that last week and there's a pretty quick move like this in the early church very quickly in church history we see structure building up and the patriarchy of the surrounding culture reasserted and women are excluded let alone sexual minorities from most positions of influence in the church, very quickly. And what about Paul? Aren't there verses where he just says some really blatantly patriarchal and homophobic things? No. Yeah, there are. But if you've read the Bible at all, uh, you know there is a lot of stuff in there, right? Like there's just a lot of stuff stuff in this text, a lot of details, a lot of just very different kinds of materials. And if, if you're going to understand this book as guiding your life in any way, you need some kind of interpretive lens to instead to, de to decide which of those details comes forward as the point. What parts guide you of this text? 
Let me give you an example here. This will be fun. Okay, let me tell you a story, and I want you to think, while I'm telling you the story, what the point of the story is, okay? I think you'll get it, because you've heard this story before. Okay, here we go. There once was a village of shepherds that found itself besieged by wolf attacks. You already know where I'm going. Fearing for the flocks, the villagers organize themselves, right? So each night, the men of the village go out, and they take turns patrolling the fields and the sheep pens, and the women stay home guarding the children. Uh, but one young man loved nothing more than to get a laugh from fooling people. And so on the first night, this little trickster on patrol begins to cry out, Wolf! Wolf! And everyone comes running, and the young man laughs and laughs because there is no wolf while the others grumbled and got back to their search. And on the second night, the trickster on patrol again begins to cry out, Wolf! Wolf! And all the patrol came running. And once again, the young man laughs and laughs because there is no wolf. And even more agitated, the others grumbled and got back to their search. Well, on the third night, the young trickster on patrol was thinking about how funny it would be to trick everyone one more time when suddenly he finds himself face to face with a big, scary wolf. And looking around, he sees there are many wolves and they're taking sheep right and left. And he sees the big one is growling and coming closer and closer. Wolf, wolf, the young man cries out. We're not fooling for that again, all the patrollers thought to themselves. And so no one came to help, and the young man was left to his doom. The end. <laughs> okay, now, what was the point of the story? What's the point? What's the thing that we should get from this story? Okay, what if I said, the point of this story is, men should be the ones who protect while women stay at home with the children. <laughs> no, that's not the point. It was in the story, wasn't it? I said that. No, of course not. Of course not. No, the story's about how no one's going to believe you if you're dishonest too often, right? If anyone tried to claim that it's teaching patriarchy, we'd say, um, you're focusing on the wrong thing here. And yet, that detail was in the story, but it's not the point. Okay. What I'm trying to suggest is that we've done something like this with the Bible. There absolutely are verses in the Bible that express the writer's patriarchal worldview. Yes, but to hold these up as essential moral absolutes is fixating on the wrong details. The overarching movement of the biblical text is the progressive discovery of divine love, the progressive inclusion of more and more kinds of people, the unexpected welcome of God for the other. It is Jesus extending a table where divisions are overcome, where Jew and Greek, male and female, and yes, queer and straight, find themselves all belonging in Christ. And part of the evolution of Christianity is for us to allow the main things, this major trajectory of our apprehension of God's goodness, to keep expanding while allowing what's details to drop away which is another way of saying that the evolution of Christianity represents a returning to the heart of Jesus' movement. Remember we said last week that one of the things that happens in deconstruction is this call to return to the heart, to what really matters. And at Pearl, 
we emphatically affirm that part of what really matters today is that every door be open to the full participation of women and LGBTQIA persons at every level of our community. We believe this is one expression of the evolution Christianity is undergoing today, that this is part of what God is up to in the world during our lifetime. Now, as I close, I just want to speak to the women and the LGBTQ persons among us today. So straight guys, you can just hang out for a minute. You can listen in if you want. I know that for many of us, being in Christian spaces has come at a real cost. We've had to work hard to prove ourselves. We've internalized self-rejection because of our gender or our orientation or our identity. And while it's good that there's movement forward happening today, it has been too long in coming. And there has been real and deep wounding. As those who have been excluded in so many ways, Jesus wants you especially at this table. This is your table. And that means you get to show up to this table just as you are without any apologies. So you can show up with anger. You can show up with exhaustion. You can be reluctant to let God too close. You can take your time in deciding if you really even want to give church a chance again. Just know that whatever you carry as you come to this table, it is especially you that this table is for. And it is especially your presence and your voice that are going to keep us moving forward. When and if you're ready to share your experiences. There's no obligation and and there's no rush. You get to just be and to be safe here. But your voice and your being is fully welcome here. Let's pray. God, you are moving everything forward. We pray that this space would be safe and become even safer for those who have been excluded and harmed to find belonging and healing and to find home. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.